ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Tuesday the 9th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. There's a flood emergency unfolding in central Victoria. It's now too late to leave for people in low-lying areas of Rochester and Yea, while residents in parts of Seymour are being urged to evacuate. While the rain has eased, there's major flooding in the Campaspe and Goulburn rivers, as Annie Guest reports. As record-breaking rain came down in parts of Victoria, Darren Gilbert felt its full force in Yay, three hours north of Melbourne. It was relentless for about two days, two and one and a half days, and uh, it is now stopped, which we're thankful for, but it was just unbelievably heavy for two days and we were, we were all thinking this is not going to happen again, but it did. Just over a year since its last flood, low-lying parts of Ye are among several areas in the state subject to evacuation orders. As the floodwaters started rising, local artist Darren Gilbert helped sandbag homes and support vulnerable residents. So everybody's just uh, done all the sandbagging work. It's, um, it's a great little community. We've done this before, so they're, um, they're grateful for the sandbags that turn up. And um, everybody's keeping an eye on them. There's a lot of old people in this town and they're, they're a bit stressed, so we're just checking in on them and, seeing, um, and making sure they're all OK. An hour and a half to the west in Seymour, Craig Williams worries about long-term residents forced to flee his flooded caravan park. The water from the, the back creek's just rising, um, kicked, all the, kicked everyone out of the park. Um, people there that have got nothing uh, from last flood have got nothing again now. Um, yeah, it's just devastating. What, what do you think it'll mean for your business then? Oh, it's going to wreck our business once again. You know, it's going to take us another two or three years to get it, you know, get on top of it again. Craig Williams believes storm drains ought to have been upgraded since the 2022 floods to help mitigate future disasters. The council said they're going to fix this, they're going to fix that, and they've done nothing about it. There's still the same areas that are flooding, all the drains in the road are flooding, nothing, no storm water's been done, nothing. But the Mitchell Shire Mayor, Louise Bannister, sees it differently. You know, it's a difficult one. I think you have to be very empathetic. Anyone who experiences a flood event, it's it's very traumatic. So I think that's that's the first point. But unfortunately, uh, where that caravan park is situated is in a designated flood zone. And the reality is um, when there's significant weather events like this, it doesn't matter uh, the type of draining infrastructure it's, it's going to flood. So Seymour had 136 millimetres of rainfall in less than two days. Um, so it's far exceeded any of our stormwater infrastructure cap- capacities. Given that, should the council be allowing a caravan park in that area? So it's not up to council. The caravan park exists there already. Um, so uh, it wouldn't be very fair if council came in and uh, told businesses that they had to, to move out. With swollen rivers and creeks across large parts of Victoria, roads remain cut and authorities are renewing their appeal to people to stay out of the flood water. Any guest reporting. The community of Rochester, about 180 kilometres north of Melbourne, is still recovering from major flooding in October 2022, when almost 1,000 properties were inundated. One of the sites hit then was St Joseph's Primary School. Principal Liz Truick has spent the past few days preparing for floodwaters to hit again, and she's been speaking to our reporter Bridget Fitzgerald. 
it's the oh no, this is happening again, and the unknown, you know, where will the water go? Will my house be impacted? You know, and where's the school? With the same, I didn't understand how the levels would impact school. So it was, let's just prepare for the fact that we're going to get wet. And where are you right now? I'm in Rochester. I've just come from watching the water near school and I'm just sort of watching near the bridge at the minute, yeah. And is your home safe? Our home's fine. We live I live, uh, we live 17 k's west of Rochester. And what about the schools and Joseph's? Uh, it's going to stay dry. It's going to stay, stay dry. So we had a we had an army of people come yesterday afternoon. We had decided as part of our flood plan that we would empty all of the furniture out of our school if we were under threat again to keep it dry. So after some historical data, we decided that our multi-purpose building was the highest point then it stayed dry in uh, 2011. So we emptied all of the furniture from all of the classrooms and put it in the hall. Uh, and we emptied the school in an hour and a half. So we had that many people there. It was just it was just amazing. And there were people that had have no personal first-hand connection to the school as well. So, you know, friends of friends just came around and just arrived. It was just wonderful. And I know that you've been keeping an eye on the floodwaters this morning specifically to see whether it might hit the school. But what about more broadly? How is Rochester looking? And do you know people that are concerned that they might actually have their house go underwater? Yeah, um, I think we've got a couple of families. So I'll check in this morning with our families. You know, I would think... There's a little bit of relief too that it maybe has, hasn't hit where we thought it might have. Um, but there's still homes, still people that are going to be impacted. So there's still going to be that devastation for some people who've probably only moved back into their homes in the last few weeks. And this is two major flood events in less than 18 months. Is there a sense of fatigue in the town having to rally again and, and do this all again? Um fatigue in the oh no we're doing it again but the energy to make sure that everything that was possible was done was as strong as I saw it in 2022. School principal Liz Truick speaking to Bridget Fitzgerald. A senior commander of the Iran-backed Hezbollah terrorist group in Lebanon has been killed by a suspected Israeli drone strike, stoking fears that the conflict in Gaza is spreading across the region. It comes just days after the killing of the deputy head of the Hamas group, also in a suspected Israeli drone strike in the Lebanese capital, Beirut. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem. Alison, tell us a little bit more about the Hezbollah commander who was killed today and the significance of that. Well, Kim, Hezbollah says Wissim Tawil was killed when his car was struck by an airstrike about 15 kilometres from the Israeli-Lebanon border. Hezbollah says it was an Israeli airstrike and Israel hasn't commented specifically on that, but it has said that the military did hit Hezbollah targets in that area. Hezbollah says Tawil was a member of the group's elite Radwan force. This is a group that operates with the specific intention of infiltrating Israel. Israel. 
And it's significant because his killing has marked the loss of the most senior Hezbollah commander since the beginning of uh, this war on October 8. Now, so far up until this point, uh, it's just basically been contained to cross-border skirmishes between Israel and Hezbollah. But this is now a more direct provocation on top of what we saw last week, an apparent Israeli airstrike in Lebanon's capital, Beirut, that killed the deputy leader of Hamas. So now with this further killing today, Hezbollah losing a senior commander, it could be seen as a large military blow for Hezbollah and also a provocation by Israel that could push Hezbollah into a much wider response on Israel. And Alison, the timing of this is interesting because the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is about to meet Israeli officials after talks in Jordan and Qatar as he tries to uh, stop the conflict from uh, spreading. Yeah, he's on this five-day tour of the Middle East and he's told Arab nations that he's going to use his time here and also when he arrives in Israel to push for more protections for Palestinian civilians in Gaza, certainly with a view to encourage Israel to not, uh, sorry, to not unnecessarily provoke any of its Arab neighbours into joining this war as well. Antony Blinken says his role here is to try and de-escalate escalate the tension in this region. Here's what he said a short while ago. No one I talk to thinks any of this will be easy. Um, all recognize the, uh, the hurdles and no one thinks that anything will happen overnight. But we agreed to work together uh, and to coordinate our efforts to help uh, Gaza stabilize and recover, to chart a political path forward for the Palestinians and to work toward long-term peace, security and stability in the region as a whole. At the same time, Kim, the Gaza Ministry of Health claims the Israeli attacks in the past 24 hours have led to the highest Palestinian death toll in the war since the start of this year. They say 247 people have been killed in the past day, an indication that Israel's offensive in Gaza is still escalating. Alison Horn. Australian leaders from communities on both sides of the Israel-Gaza conflict have condemned an alleged bomb threat against a Palestinian supporter in Sydney. Police say they're investigating and one expert says this sort of threat needs to be taken seriously. As Eliza Getsy reports. The device looks crude. The anonymous message, menacing. Theo says he came out of his home in South Sydney last Friday to find a jerry can with a lighter and metal bolts taped to it sitting on the bonnet of his car. You could smell petrol and I think they said there was petrol in it. In photos shared on X, formerly known as Twitter, a handwritten cardboard sign can be seen that reads, Enough. Take down flag. One chance. I felt obviously threatened, like it, it is a threat, and I felt like a, a level of contempt and disgust. Theo's home is one of many flying the Palestinian flag across cities like Sydney as the war between Israel and Hamas continues. He says his display was an attempt at prompting conversations about the conflict. Someone sneaking into our yard in the middle of the night to, to plant an anonymous thing to scare us. It's not open. It's not honest. They're not trying to have a discussion. They are just saying shut up. The New South Wales Police Rescue and Bomb Squad arrived at the house in Botany within minutes. New South Wales Police have confirmed the item was then deemed to be safe. Detectives established a crime scene and are investigating. It's yet another incident that has communities on both sides of the Israel-Gaza conflict worried about rising levels of aggression on Australian shores. 
Nasser Mashni is the president of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. A person can't even have a flag in their front yard without this sort of hate being directed at their way. It's just really, really disgusting. It's, a, it's a real act of cowardice. Nasser Mashni says he fields regular calls from members of the local Palestinian community who are suffering harassment, and many have come from war-torn backgrounds, so they don't always feel comfortable interacting with police. My message to all Australian Palestinians and those that support Palestine is to, if they are suffering anti-Palestinian racism, they need to report it. Federal opposition leader Peter Dutton has condemned the alleged threat. We want people to be able to live safely and I hope the police are able to find who was responsible and hold them to account. So too has the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. Peter Wertheim is the co-CEO of the group, which reported a seven-fold increase in anti-Semitic incidents locally in October and November, compared with the same time in 2022. Threats of violence of any kind uh, are just unacceptable. Greg Barton is a professor of global Islamic politics at Deakin University. He says it's vital leaders condemn threatening behaviour. Now we don't know who did it and we don't know their, their motive, their intent, but on the face of it, it looks really worrying. So getting all major political figures and people involved in public commentary consistently speaking out against this and saying this is just not acceptable. As the investigation continues, anyone with information is urged to contact Crime Stoppers. Eliza Getty. As the federal government prepares to deliver a white paper on aviation reform this year, major airlines continue to face accusations they're hoarding takeoff and landing slots at Sydney Airport. Critics say the big players schedule and then cancel flights on purpose to keep their competitors out. But the major airlines say there's no evidence it's happening. David Sparks reports. The idea that airlines might schedule more flights than they have the demand or capacity to run frustrates travellers and industry experts. Aviation analyst Ian Douglas from the University of New South Wales says it's mainly an issue for the airports in Sydney and Melbourne and changes are needed. If there are airlines that have been habitually, uh, season after season, not using all of the slots that are assigned, we need to have, a, I think, a better system to have some of those returned to the pool provided to others. Under the rules, an airline must use at least 80% of its slots at an airport, otherwise it risks losing them. That means they can choose not to use up to 20% of their slots. How I would tweak it is I think you need to overlay on that system... Uh, some analysis that says, are you as an airline actually able to operate the slots that you are holding? Is your fleet adequate? If you are not intending to use it, you should hand it back. Smaller airlines, Rex and Bonza, have previously argued that Qantas, Virgin and Jetstar make it harder for them to operate at Sydney Airport by manipulating slots. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has also been critical. Commissioner Anna Brakey says the watchdog is recommending a tougher use-it-or-lose-it approach. So we would like to see changes to the way that slots are allocated uh, and the way that those slot allocations are monitored, reported on and enforced so that what, what would ultimately happen is it gives new and growing airlines a better chance to get a foot in the market. We think that if they get that foot in the market, customers will benefit because prices will be lower and uh, on-time performance and cancellations should improve. Former ACCC Chairman Graham Samuel is now Chair of Airlines for Australia and New Zealand, which represents Qantas, Virgin, Jetstar, Rex and Air New Zealand. 
He says there's no evidence that slot hoarding happens. It's a convenient expression to use, um, particularly uh, where there is no evidence uh, as such to back it up. Graeme Samuel says airlines want the federal government to adopt a recommendation made in 2020 by former chair of the Productivity Commission, Peter Harris, for a full audit of the slot system. The audit is very important because the audit will produce the evidence either that there is slot hoarding or that there is not. And it is just a bit too convenient to use the populist expression slot hoarding when we haven't really got the evidence to back it up in any real sense. The federal government is now conducting a review of the aviation industry, including slot allocations, and a white paper is due mid-2024. David Sparks reporting. As the cost of living remains high, charity stores are playing an important role in providing goods at budget-friendly prices. And there's a big demand from communities with specific cultural and religious needs. Rima Chia visited one store in Liverpool in Sydney's southwest. A couple of women are deciding whether to buy the cushions or a men's abaya. The abaya, a long dress-like garment worn by both men and women in the Middle East and North Africa, is not a regular op shop find. But they're in abundance here at the Ziki store in Liverpool in Sydney's southwest. It's run by the charity National Zakat Foundation, or NZF. Sadika Davids is the store's founder. I used to collect all my long dresses and my buyers and I used to just store it in the garage at home because I didn't want to give it to a random charity or I didn't want to give it to anybody. And when I started reaching about 10, 12 bags, I said to my husband, I need to open an op shop and he said, just brush it off like oh, something you're going through. Sadika's husband, Ismail Davids, is NZF CEO. The store opened in 2019. But it's proved very popular. It's now expanding with a second Sydney store, one in Melbourne, and the most recent opening in Darwin. Yeah, the response has been very good, especially from the um, Arab migrants. They know if they walk in here, they're going to find a jilbab or they're going to find a scarf that will suit them. Fashion for Muslim women is a growing industry, as too is demand for recycled clothing. Anissa Ismail is the founder of the Melbourne-based modest wear label Iman. She simplified her business model to make sure her brand's clothing doesn't end up in landfill. From the very, very start of manufacturing all the way to selling it and then afterwards, we were looking at each step of the garment and like how we can make that entire cycle of a piece of clothing a lot more sustainable. Part of that model is donating customers pre-loved Iman items that are in good condition to the Ziki store Melbourne branch, giving them a new lease on life. Cost of living pressures mean more Aussies are turning to op shops to find their essentials that are more budget friendly. For multicultural communities, that could be hit or miss to find items that meet their needs. Sadika Davids has noticed demand for the basics have skyrocketed. Customers have been coming in more and asking for more um, everyday things. Whereas before, they'll be stopping at the jewellery counter and a lot of them are going straight to the scarves or the underwear. Anissa Ismail believes the goal of second-hand fashion is broader than just coping with rising cost-of-living pressures. She says it's a lifestyle and a philosophy that we should all embrace. It's some level of circular economy in order to just deal with the immense waste that we as a country produce 
not just in the clothing and fashion industry, but in all other industries. Businesswoman Anissa Ismail ending that report from Rima Chia. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.